Well, please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, in God's Word uh, to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Uh, if you're using one of the church's Bibles, you'll find that beginning on page 557. We're going to read this morning uh, the first 12 verses, Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 through 12. Beloved, this is God's word that he has selected for us to hear this morning. Please give your attention to the reading of it. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous And the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, as he who swears is, as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go. Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let oil, or sorry, let not be oil lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray that he would be pleased to meet us in it and speak to us uh, through it. Lord, as we come to your word, we are extremely aware that we have not the faculties on our own to understand this word or more importantly to submit to it and to benefit from it. And so we ask that you would be with us, that you would be among us, that you would open your word to us and grant us understanding and most importantly that you would grant us faith in and obedience to this most precious word. Amen. You may be seated. At its very heart, I think our passage asks two questions, and they are familiar questions because we've all heard them asked. 
They're familiar because they've been asked in all ages, in all societies, in all cultures. But most importantly, these two questions are familiar because we have heard them inside our own minds. We have asked them ourselves. The first is something like this. Why is suffering so indiscriminate? And we might ask this because we've seen something that a loved one has gone through that just seems wrong, unfair. A couple works hard all their lives. They pour their lives into their children. They scrimp. They save. They dream of retirement and traveling together. And just as retirement is within reach, the doctors utter those scariest of words. It's cancer. And we just want to scream. It's not fair. Why now? Why them? Or it might be something you've personally endured. You, you work hard. You play by the rules. You know you're not perfect, but you try your best. You, you, you seek to treat people with love and respect. You tell the truth, even if it comes at a cost to you. And then the economy turns, and your job is the one that gets cut. And your coworker, who had no problem lying, who didn't care about other people, who, who doesn't work hard, seems to skate by, and he keeps his job. And you wonder, what's the point? Maybe I should just stop trying so hard. It certainly doesn't seem like it's helping. Simply put, We often feel like we are the victims, unjustly suffering in some cosmic game of chess where we're just the pawns on a board being moved about and sacrificed. That's the first question. Why is life so unfair? The second takes on different forms, but they essentially all ask, Am I letting God down? We struggle to figure out what God expects from us, and we start looking at what other people seem to be accomplishing and producing. We look at what we are accomplishing and producing. We don't see many people that appear to come to the Lord through our witness. We certainly haven't started a revolution. We have not set the world on fire. We're not even sure if we've caused a spark anywhere. And at work, we, we try hard, but we're nothing exceptional. We could easily be replaced. And we wonder, am I doing enough? Or am I letting God down? If you have not asked both of these questions, I would be amazed, possibly concerned, because they're extremely common. In the first, both questions really reveal something about us, about the human condition. That that first question, we believe ourselves to be the victim, that we suffer unjustly, that, that we deserve something better. In the second, we see ourselves as the ones who owe something more. 
The first one where something more is owed to us, and the second, we owe something. We, are so, we see ourselves not as the victims, but the perpetrators, the, the villains. We're failing to treat God as He deserves, as He demands. We've, we've let Him down and we feel guilty. And we brace ourselves for the worst. And both of these questions tell us more about ourselves than they do about God. They betray that we think God simply deals with us according to how good we are, according to what we deserve. So when we feel good about ourselves, we feel let down. When we feel bad about ourselves, we feel like we're letting Him down. We struggle to believe that life is not a model of justice of what should be. We know what God says in His Word. We know that He has said that He does not deal with us as we deserve. But, but somewhere between our ears and our hearts, that message gets fuzzy. And we struggle to believe it. And these are the two questions that our passage deals with today. Am I being let down? Am I letting God down? Have I been treated unfairly? Have I treated Him unfairly? And my hope as we look at this passage is, is to drive home this really this one point. In this life, we struggle to see ourselves as victims and villains, but neither of which is helpful for living a life that glorifies God. Neither of those is helpful. And to see this, we want to first wrestle with what Solomon tells us about life uh, and what he doesn't tell us. We want to also see, we want to understand the limits of what he's saying. We need to see what he is and what he isn't saying. Once we've done that, then we'll be able to see how God allows so much to happen in our lives. And then in light of that, we'll be able to see what he does and does not require And then we want to circle back and we want to ask a question, and it's this at the end. What what if life was as we think it should be? Would that be better or worse? That's where we want to head uh, this morning. But I want to start in the middle of our passage, verses 4 through 6. On the one hand, it sounds obvious. He's, He's basically saying, is it better to be alive or dead? And he says it's better to be alive. And we think, okay, thanks, Captain Obvious. Yes, it is better to be alive. That's why we try to avoid death. This is why we wear seatbelts. This is why we don't jump off buildings and things like that. But then we, we think about these words. It is better to be alive than dead and they kind of sound a bit familiar. Familiar, maybe, but also a bit different. Didn't Paul say something like that? So we look it up, and sure enough, we, we find Philippians 1, a book Brian will start preaching through next week. And there Paul says this, For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Which shall I choose? I cannot tell. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And it sounds like the exact opposite of what Solomon is saying. 
It sounds like Paul is saying Solomon had it all wrong in Ecclesiastes. Rip that book out of your Bible. We kind of picture this battle royale. Solomon against Saul. Who is right? Are we going to get to heaven and find the two take stage and finally solve the debate? Or is something more going on in our passage? At the risk of disappointing you, I don't think Solomon and Paul are at odds. I don't think they're debating and fighting. I think they're addressing different things. Solomon is not comparing two lives, life on earth and life in heaven. That's what Paul is doing in Philippians 1. What Solomon has in mind is something else entirely. In verses 3 and 11, he frames our entire passage with that familiar phrase in Ecclesiastes, under the sun. And that's what he's addressing, trying to help us understand life in this world. That is what he is addressing, trying to help us understand. In this world, it is only the living who can do something. Once death comes, it's too late to do something on this earth. And so it's good to ask what we ought to do with this life while we have it, before we die. What you make of this life is dependent upon the breath in your lungs, because once that's gone you stop doing things on this earth. And to drive this home, he says, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Dogs in the ancient world were not man's best friend. They were scavengers. They were a nuisance. Lions were, especially in Israel, majestic symbols of royalty. The the Messiah was said that he would be the lion of the tribe of Judah. But what good is it to be majestic if you're dead? It's better to be a living scavenger. And we ought not read anything more into Solomon's words than this. He's, he's not comparing earth and heaven. That's what Paul does. He's talking about what you can do with this life while you can, while you're able. And that helps us to better understand what God allows to happen to us and what God does and does not require from us in response. Our passage reminds us what we all see in our lives, that God allows all sorts of things to happen in this life. This is where our passage opens and closes. The same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil. And he repeats that in verses 11 and 12. He uses just about every dichotomy you can imagine to drive this one home, this one point home. No one is safe from life's troubles. Life is indiscriminate in the distribution of suffering. It doesn't care how old or young, how rich or poor, whether you're conscientious or careless, what color your skin is, whether you're a sinner or a saint, no one is safe. And it's maddening, verse 3. But look again at verse 1. He says, all of this is in the hand of God. Reality is not disconnected from its creator. This is his world. And he is in charge. Nothing happens without his permission. The Bible says not even a hair falls from your head without his permission. The world is as he has ordained it to be. And the question we keep coming back to that nags us is why? 
Why can't there be a benefit for those who seek after God? Why doesn't God just reward wise decisions? Why does he allow such bad things to happen to the honest, to the hard workers? If he wants people to make better decisions, why doesn't he make it more beneficial to do so? Now, we could spend multiple sermons on the reasons that God allows suffering in the lives of his children. But I do think it's important to ask, maybe just today, what if things were different? What if Christians were immune to suffering? Would people come because of their love for God above all earthly comfort or because he was the ticket to an easy life? Would that be good or detrimental to God's kingdom? Would it encourage faith or would it inadvertently destroy it? God has intentionally made it so that following him is costly. Do you remember what Satan tried to accuse God of in the book of Job? Well, sure he follows you. Life's easy. But that could never be the case. And so God says, you are free to sift him, to test him, to remove all those earthly comforts. God must allow suffering to fall on all alike. So what does God require of us in the face of all of that? Perhaps it would be best to start by asking what he does not require of us in this world, life in this world. I grew up in a church context where we were constantly being asked, what have you done for God this week? And then we would hear testimonies from world changers, and the implication was clear. That's what God expects from you. And the result wasn't that everyone became world changers, but that everyone carried around this burden of guilt, a sense that they were every day letting their Heavenly Father down. Just a little more. If I just worded that a little bit differently, they might have become a Christian. If I just play a little less and I work a lot more, The sense was that it was, whatever you did, it was just always too little, never enough. And whether or not villain is the right word to describe this, I chose it because, you know, two V's. It makes for a good sermon title. But, But the feeling was constant and hard to shake that we were disappointing God. That's why verses 7 and 10 are so freeing. Verse 10 tells us, yes, work hard at what you're called to do. Be diligent. Be a hard worker. Well, that's your calling. While while you're on earth, do what God has called you to do as well as you can. But verse 7 is important and absolutely necessary. God has already approved what you do. Not if you do better than the next guy, if you change the world, if you start a revolution, God will approve it. 
God's approval is more tied to how you approach your calling than what you accomplish through it. It goes back, doesn't it, to where we started our journey in Ecclesiastes in chapter 1. We have a tendency to try to find a legacy, a sense of immortality and eternality in what we do by bringing about something that was this new and amazing. And that's idolatry. Most of us will never do things that alter reality and we will need to repeat what we do over and over and over again until we die and after we die, someone else will have to come along and repeat what we've been doing. What God keeps reminding us of in this book is that that does not rob what we do of its significance, it establishes it. Remember the, the, the example he gave us in chapter 1 of the sun? It, Every day, it's got to come up. That doesn't mean the sun is insignificant. That's our life. If it doesn't come up tomorrow, neither will we. God's approval rests upon those who humbly offer their labors for God's glory, not their own. You're not letting God down because you're slogging away at the daily grind and never seem to get ahead. You're not a disappointment. You're not a villain. What God would have you focus on is what we find in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. These are metaphors for holiness. Pouring oil on someone's head was an, was an act of consecration, setting them apart for, for holy service to God. It was done to priests and kings in Israel. And it, Ecclesiastes is essentially saying, just because all people endure the same things does not mean all people are the same. Come out. You belong to God. How you respond to this life is more important than what happens to you. That same reality is conveyed in the white garments. Before priests could serve in God's house, they had to wash their garments and make them clean. And the imagery was, was one of, of their moral condition, that they're covered in sin and they have to wash their garments before they can serve the Lord. Wash away their sin. In the book of Revelation, we saw God's people are, are dressed in white garments, a picture of having been forgiven of their sins and made righteous in Jesus Christ. Ecclesiastes is essentially saying the same thing that, that the Apostle James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, visit the widows and the orphans in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. Visiting widows and orphans doesn't alter the course of the world. It goes largely unnoticed. God doesn't say, if you really want me to be pleased, make headlines. He says, 
visit the afflicted, and don't be like the world. Devotion to God is more important than being a large personality. God does not measure your life by the mark your life makes on the world, but by the mark the gospel makes on your life. But many misunderstand what it means to be unstained by the world. They, they think that that means that you have to detach yourself from all relationships, possessions, and pleasures. They think it means living the monastic lifestyle. That any enjoyment, any pleasure is worldliness. It's that idea that, that God loves a dour life. Verses 7 and 9 are meant to guard against that understanding. You are meant to enjoy bread and wine with a merry heart. This is not the only time we've seen this in Ecclesiastes, is it? It commends enjoyment regularly. It's precisely when you realize that the fate of the world does not rest on your shoulders, that God does not expect from you some Herculean change. It's then that you're freed up to work hard and then to rest and enjoy a meal, some bread, some wine, and have a merry heart. And to realize that doing so is an act of faith because it forces you to confess that you're not the savior of the world, that if you take a break, God will not fail. Life is short. Verse 9 says, enjoy the wife that God has given you. It's not meant to say that wives are the only gifts that God gives It's just an example of how generous God has been with us. And that we're meant to enjoy his gifts and not neglect them. God does not forbid you from enjoying his gifts. He demands it. So the truth is, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've placed your hope in him, and surrendered all for his glory. You're neither a victim nor a villain. This is just the nature of life under the sun. All are subject to its miseries, none escape pain in this life. The righteous and the wicked suffer alike. God does not expect you to transform or rescue the world. He expects you to cling to him and live the short life you have for his glory. Of course you should share your faith. Of course you should work hard. But if you do that under this burdened sense that he is dependent upon you, not you are dependent upon him, you'll rob it of all joy. But I think it would be a mistake to end here. There's an important question we must ask. I said at the beginning I would want to circle around at the end and ask, what if life was the way we often think it should be? What if the righteous did not and could not suffer in this world? Would that be better or worse? 
If that was the case, it would have meant that when Jesus came into this world, he would be immune to pain and suffering. The wicked would not be able to lay a finger on him. Because he was, after all, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He was the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the long-awaited Messiah, the King of Israel, David's greater son. He lived a perfectly righteous life and never once, in the slightest way, gave himself to sin. If the world was as we claim we wished it was, then death could not have stolen the breath from his lungs. He would have only been the kingly lion and never the slain lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And us? We would be without hope because without the blood of the lamb, our robes could never be white. Our sin could never be washed away. Revelation tells us that we have washed our robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We would still, if the world was as we claim we wished it was, we would still be covered in our sin. And we would never be able to obey verse 8 and let our garments be white. Not unless the Lion of Judah suffered the death of the Lamb of God. You see, there are times when a dead lion is better than a living dog. Because without that dead lion, there is no hope, there is no salvation. And this helps us to see another purpose of God in our suffering. If our salvation can come through the suffering of the righteous, what makes us think that our growth will not come through it as well? Verse 1 tells us our lives are in his hands. He has a plan. He's doing something. He knows what is best for us, not just for our short lives under the sun, but for all eternity. We are in the hands of God. We are his children. Romans reminds us, The Spirit bears witness that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we might also be glorified with Him. The Scriptures invite us to see the world with more than our simplistic assumptions about how things ought to be. They invite us to see our lives in this world through the lens of the life Christ lived in this world. And when we do, we understand that God knows what he's doing and there is no place we should rather be than in his hands. And to help us see that, the Lord invites us to come and eat at his table. to eat some bread with joy, to drink some wine with a merry heart. In coming to the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that the Lion of Judah is the Lamb of God. We are reminded that His life on this earth was but a breath, that it was short, that He suffered unjustly at the hands of the wicked. It tells us what to expect in this world if we belong to Him, but it tells us so much more as well. 
It reminds us that God's ways are not like our ways. They are better. Our only hope of eternal life is in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross made visible in this bread and wine. Jesus says to us, do you remember what he said in John 6? Unless you eat my bread, my, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life. And he didn't mean physically eating his flesh and blood. He went on to make it clear that, that we receive him by resting our hope in him through faith. And then he left us the Lord's Supper to remind us that that he gives us no benefit as long as he is outside of us. That we have no life unless he dies for us. That suffering is necessary. The necessary path on the way to eternal life. That his ways are indeed better than our ways. And so he invites you to come and to eat bread And drink wine with a merry heart. For in Christ you are reminded that your robes have been washed. And that God in Christ has already approved what you do. That he is not disappointed. He is not upset. He is not out of control. But he declares to you in Christ, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive this wonderful blessing. Please join me in prayer. Our mighty lion, our gracious lamb, we are far too quick to think about injustices in our lives and far too slow to think about the injustice done to Jesus on the cross. More shocking still is that he willingly endured this for our sakes, for without it we have no life. Help us to understand the injustices in our lives and not despair. Help us to remember that you do not expect us to transform or save the world. You expect us to be holy as you are holy. You expect us to follow after you. Teach us to enjoy your gifts, to delight in the relationships you have given, to stop, to eat and drink and have joy in our hearts. Teach us to remember all that you have done. All of this we ask through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.